Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui. I am joined by most of our cast and crew, Matthew Lee Anderson and uh, Alistair Roberts. Uh, but today we also have on an, a guest, uh, Mike Austin, who is the uh, chair of philosophy or professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University. And we're having him on to chat with us today. Uh, about sport, but more on that in a minute. Uh, welcome on the show, Mike. Thanks. Good to be here. So we wanted to have you on because we know that you have thought and written on the issue of sports and sports and ethics and philosophy. And, you know, we're in the middle of the Olympics right now, or we're recording in the middle of the Olympics. I'm not sure if it's done by the time this goes up. But, um, you know, the Olympics are the, you know, the great the great sporting event uh, of, you know, international acclaim, international fame where, you know, all, all tribes, tongues, nations come and, and try and try and beat each other uh, in various events. And so there are all kinds of interesting kind of philosophical and religious issues involved, especially when you start to consider the founding. Um, so it's pointed out in a recent article that, uh, some of the early founders of the Olympics actually had kind of theological and religious philosophical ideas about Olympism as a kind of substitute for a traditional faith. Uh, I guess the quote here by Kubertan is, uh, you know, he says, for me, sport is a religion uh, with church dogma and ritual. Uh, and he, I guess he delivered this and, and, this is kind of a, a continued religious sentiment uh, that is is um, was even echoed later on in the 20th century. That it's this kind of religion with a universal appeal and incorporates all the basic values and promotes internationalism. And it's this it's this kind of overall philosophy. Um, a lot of people don't think about you know when they think about the Olympics, they don't think about that. They think about oh cool, we get to see people tumble and. Um, shoot archery, you know, shoot, shoot bows and arrows, which we don't typically do. And it's kind of that <laughs> general spectacle, but, um, archery, that's the sport you went for. There was, there was a guiding philosophy. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's that's my thing. favorite when sport. You How'd it? you know? <laughs> I, you know, there's just something about philosophers, you know, I just figured I'd go for a weird one. Um, but all that to say, um, kind of just interested in breaking open this subject of, of, uh, sport and religion, sport and ethics, uh, but looking at kind of the philosophy behind the Olympics and taking that as that opportunity. So, um, that's, that's the basic, that's the basic thrust of things. Mike, do you have any initial forays or thoughts on, uh, on the subject or does anybody want to sharpen that into a question? I, I just want yeah, to know, Alistair. Mike, should should we actually watch the Olympics? Is it the sort of thing? I mean, the Olympics are such that um, what, what Derek was saying about it, bringing people together, that seems true. It's the one time in uh, sort of every two years now when people who don't otherwise care about sports can feel entirely justified about caring about sports because it's not really about sports. It's kind of about patriotic sentiment and nationalism and so on and so forth. Um, and so it does have a type of appeal that um, other 
athletic competitions don't have a have it has a breadth of appeal uh, which is really interesting um I mean, is it the sort of thing that Christians can and should get behind? Should be we be all be spending our evenings watching highlights of the Olympics, or should we be spending it on higher and loftier things like Twitter? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Like Netflix. <laughs> I was thinking listening to back episodes. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> but yeah, you know, you I've watched rock stars. Yeah, there you go. Um, I've watched less of this of them this time around than I normally do. Um, but yeah, I think it's something we can, as Christians can take part in. I mean, it's, it's like a lot of things in the culture. It's got some very redemptive values and some, you know, not so much. Um, I remember, but there is that attitude of like that, that some have I remember several years, probably 10 years ago, just visiting a church. It was during the Olympics and the, the pastor said something like, you know, he made a comment about the Olympics, but he had more important and better things to do than waste his time watching that. And so some people have that attitude and that's fine. But, um, but yeah, if you care about sport and you care about, um, yeah, I mean, I guess what I like about it at a basic level, apart from, you know, I definitely don't think it replace religion, but it, it tries to for some people, but I think it's this picture of human excellence, right? We like to see, um, people who devote themselves, you know, their, their efforts, their capacities, their bodies, their minds to achieving a form of excellence. And so what I appreciate about the Olympics is seeing that um, and seeing the result of that. You know, I don't know if you remember, I think it was two years ago, part of the Olympic creed is that it's, well, they talk about it's not, they kept saying it's not the triumph, it's the struggle. Yeah, here it is. The most important thing is not to win, but to take part. Just as the most important thing is in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. The essential thing is not to have conquered, but to have fought well. And I think what's interesting when you watch Olympic coverage, there's this both angles. Some people, it's, you know, you hear about it, it's all about gold. So Michael Phelps just got his 21st gold medal and how awesome that is. And then they'll show you the, the story of the person who's just grateful to make the Olympics. Um, it's like a lifelong dream. It doesn't matter whether they get a medal or not. They're just happy to be there. And, uh, so yeah, that might be a, a long way around to say, yeah, if, if you like sports, the Olympics, there's some redemptive things there about human excellence and, and sometimes moral and intellectual virtues are on display, I would argue. And of course, so are vices, but, but it's a human thing. So that's what's, what we should expect. Hmm. Yeah, your, your point about the, the dichotomy of the stories seems right to me. I was listening to NPR uh, the other day. Ooh, I don't know if I can admit that to people. Um, but they, they, they interviewed um, an American fencer who went out in the first round. And I was struck by the fact that um, this fencer's mother, even though he had lost in the first round, um, was just giddy, um, was sort of unnaturally happy and said, you know, we, we, yeah. we have some celebrating to do was her closing comment and I thought well that's that's a very odd response to um, what would seem like failure um, uh, and I it maybe maybe it's an easier response to have if you go out in the first round right like if you go go out in the uh, if you take silver it might actually be harder to cultivate that sort of Right. Uh, sense of well, we're just glad we're here. It's really about the struggle because you almost you almost triumphed and you didn't quite. Um, 
uh, but but I think I think you're right to to say there is that sort of polarity that goes on. Yeah, it's interesting. Silver, it's been several. I mean, people talk about being the hardest metal to accept because you're so close to gold, right? If you get a bronze, you're just in general just happy that you meddled. <laughs> um, and so it's sort of this in between. But I suspect most of them are happy to have a silver unless they were expecting to get gold. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear thoughts on we can focus upon the actual games themselves, what's the excellence and the achievement on display. And, I mean, I share the appreciation for seeing just the extents of the limits of human experience, of human achievement being pushed. So when you see someone like Michael Phelps or Katie Ledecky or Usain Bolt, you're in awe of their athletic skill but you also delight in it you delight in the fact that this is something that a human being <clears throat> that the human body can do the body that has been or at least by american human bodies alistair only american <laughs> there were two out of three americans on that list let's just point that out. yeah i was being generous to the fact Considering the fact that most of our listeners will come from North America, I was going to list a number of athletes with which they would be familiar. <laughs> nice. But yes, we can, we can appreciate the achievement and the excellence. But in the process, often what we can lose sight of is the fact that the games are a far broader thing than actually what takes place on the field or on the um, track. It also involves a significant cost, um, human cost and economic cost for the host cities. It involves a social cost. I mean, you see the effects in Brazil, all the issues that they've faced over the past few years in the run-up to this Olympics. You see the corruption behind the scenes. You see, for instance, the doping issue with Russia, all these sorts of things. And then some of the questions that are raised around... Um, that have bearing upon bigger human questions. So the status of athletes like Casta Semenya and um, how do we deal with intersex conditions in this context? All of this suggests that while we can focus upon the events on the field themselves and the events on our screens, we can often miss the broader picture, the broader events that are taking place. What does this mean for people in Rio, um, in a situation of poverty when their government is paying so much upon hosting this games that money that as history has seemed to bear out over the last few decades does not translate into long-term investment in the communities that host the events what are we to think about that um how are we to respond to the fact that there is a significant collateral cost to these events should these be reasons for us to boycott these events so for instance the forthcoming um fifa world cup in qatar the suggestion that there may be up to 60 people killed for every game that's played 60 people whose lives are lost in the construction that is a tremendous human toll um and that's the extreme form that it can take. But we also see this in the form of 
um, the economic cost and the political cost, the social cost and the sense of alienation within these societies. For every story of success, we have someone on the podium who came from a poor background and achieved. We also have many stories or the larger story of people whose community has not been supported or has been pushed out of the sight of the cameras in order to host this event. How do we respond to that? Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for ruining it for me. <laughs> Enjoy the Olympics, everyone. <laughs> I will be listening to back episodes. <laughs> yeah. um, no, it's a good question. And I think it's especially... It's even more relevant to the Olympics um, because right, Olympic movement has this... It's really the only one I know that has an explicit philosophy that it states that undergirds it. And one of those, right, you can go to the Olympic website and it talks about a respect for universal fundamental ethical principles. Um, and it seems like that collateral damage is in direct, or it's in direct conflict with that. Um, so that's something I've thought about more with the World Cup because I'm more, more of a soccer or football fan. But it's obviously it's relevant in the Olympics as well. So... What are we, yeah, what are we to think about that? Well, I don't know. Can we just say it's a fallen world? Um, but we can't just give up <laughs> <laughs> and then say, well, too bad. I think we have to, yeah, what, do what we can. It's going to have to come from within these organizations and how we put pressure on them, whether it's a boycott or I don't know what makes them, what would make them actually change um, and be more concerned about that collateral damage. Will you, will you watch the World Cup when in, in Qatar? I mean, will like, is there a threshold level that you're that that you'd say there's like evils beyond which we simply cannot be uh, supportive as audiences? Um, by virtue of being an audience, we have a kind of indirect complicity in um, the organization, right? We're we're supporting it. We're we're doing what it needs us to do to maintain its power. Um, FIFA, you, you say you're more of a of a soccer fan you obviously know fifa is a horrendously corrupt organization and the fact that it's yeah i mean 60 people dead for every game that will be played in qatar that doesn't include the the soccer players who might die because it'll be 120 degrees uh you know it's it just shouldn't be in qatar there's no reason for it um is there a threshold level that that above which you think like, nope, that's just too bad. We, we absolutely should not. And how do you, how do you sort of set that threshold? Yeah, it's hard as a, it's hard for me to think that whether or not I watch the games on television will make a difference, but yeah, there's gotta be a threshold of something and 60 deaths per game seems like, you know, at least intuitively it's past that threshold. Um, it's a collective action. It, yeah, that's. I mean, it's a hard. It's a, yeah, it's a collective action problem. It's the same <laughs> to pull it into yeah. politics, right? It's a, the same problem that we're all having with respect to our presidential nominees, right? Well, it's hard to say that voting third party is going to make any difference. I'm throwing my vote away, um, um, and so I might as well just go along with the crowd, and you know grin and bear it uh voting for one of these two candidates and so but but it is there is a sense in which um the fact that i need a sufficient number of other people to act likewise 
for it to have a substantive effect doesn't get me off the hook, right? That doesn't that doesn't actually exonerate uh, me in terms of moral reasoning. It just makes me uh, a member of the crowd, um, which you know the thing to do might be to say no to all of that. So I think I think Mike, I'm really arguing you just shouldn't watch the games. You shouldn't watch. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean I, I feel a pull. I feel that pull, um, you know, just the, yeah, the complicity that comes with that. Um, I mean, I'll, if I'm honest right now off the cuff, I'd say I'll watch World Cup games and then I'll just feel bad that, you know, or guilty about it maybe a little bit. Um, uh, you know, but but we'll see. I'll have to think about it more. I didn't know it was the cost was 60 per game. That, that makes it more difficult for me. Um, so thank you. Thanks again. You've ruined the Olympics and the World Cup. <laughs> Alistair yeah. likes to, to ruin things yeah. like that. Listen to Mere Fidelity. We'll yeah, take all of your fun and joy away. That should be our tagline. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. On the sports thing, first first we first we took out Pee Wee football. Now we're trying to rob people of the Olympics. And you know, there's just no and the World Cup in, in one so, single podcast. So can I no can I go back to you the earlier the opening sort of question about religiosity in sport? Um, so here's here's one way of thinking about it, Mike. You talked about excellence on the um, uh, on the field, um, in the pool, where wherever uh, that excellence is. Um, it's not just excellence that we love seeing as viewers. It's also the drama, right? It's the it's the narrative. It's it's the story of triumph, and it's and it's the suspense that we don't quite know what's going to happen. That there's there's a a deep uncertainty here. Um, in his book, mediated Thomas uh, Dazen Gadada um, actually points out that um, the rising popularity of sports. Uh, maybe because it's one of the last places where the ending isn't scripted, at least ostensibly, right? Where where there is a, you know, the Cavaliers c- can beat the Warriors, even though the Warriors were a 73-win team, and so on and so forth, right? Like, we don't know what the ending is. And so we watch in part because um, there's little else in our lives that doesn't feel foreordained or given and sports is an arena where the underdog can still triumph um it seems like as a as an audience member that sense of drama gives the sorts of ecstatic thrills that are kind of secular a secular form of a religious experience right like we we cheer we um we uh, worship. We go through all of the practices. Um, we we buffet our bodies for the sake of um, this sort of excellence in our imitative uh, performances. Um, and so it seems like it's the whatever the cult of excellence is around the Olympics. Um, it is something more than that. It does have the atmosphere of a genuine secular religiosity to it. Am I wrong in seeing that? And, and how, sh- I mean, how should Christians think about that dimension of it? Yeah, I think that's a good, 
good issue to raise. And I think, yeah, and I think the other part that draws people to watch, and maybe it's it's more of a baser instinct, it's, you know, like the, the swimmer shadow boxing and then the Michael Phelps death stare at him, right? We like this, or the the U.S. swimmer who had come out against the Russian swimmers performance-enhancing drugs and, you know, just the, almost like that conflict, right? So, so it's, and it, it comes down to the nationalism and almost a different form of good versus evil, right? So I'm an Arsenal fan in the Premier League. and How dare you? Know, you? If, you're, if you're from London, you hate Tottenham. How dare <laughs> What's you? That? How dare I, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, there are clear cases of good and evil there, right? Chelsea's <laughs> So... But, uh, but yeah, I actually think that's right. I think that, I think you can make a case that as a Christian, that, that people are looking for these surrogate experiences and practices to take place of the religious ones. Um, so as a Christian, we have to ask the question, well, what's the proper place of this thing in my life where, where all, all I do is supposed to be ordered toward, you know, union with God and the kingdom of God and things like that. So it's putting, you know, the Olympics or sport in general in its proper place in that setting where others might you know, put it up in, in a place where it shouldn't be, right? As a sort of a secular nationalistic religion, or for many, then maybe they're not comfortable with the nationalism, but it's still this still plays the role of a religion somehow. Um, these experiences, like you said, the suspense, the, the elation when something unexpected happens and it's the person or team you support. So, so as a Christian, we think, well, what's, what's the role of this, right? It, it may not doesn't have ultimate value for us, but it can have some value, both the practice and I guess the consumption. I, I actually think the consumption is more difficult than the practice, right? So I coach mm, a, yes. a middle school girls soccer a soccer team. And so I, I'm in control of like how well as much as you can be with you know, <laughs> girls girls. girls but um, but you know, I, I you I use that as a way to try to teach them some some things about, you know, life and setting goals and you know, moral values, but but as a consumer, I don't. I, yeah, it's that collective action problem. You know, I don't have control over Qatar or FIFA or the bribes that got the Olympics where they're at over the years. So, so yeah, it's it's a difficult thing. Um, so, I actually think in a Christian life, we should be focusing more on participation, even if it's just recreational or in the backyard or or helping our children or or coaching kids to help them see sport the right way. Because we, the consumption part is just caught up with. With consumerism, um, with these problems of social justice, with uh, the bloating of the importance of the of the triumph rather than the struggle, things like that. Yeah, that's good. So I've 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 other questions. Um, the surrogate experiences versus use the language of surrogate experiences, and that's I I I'd want to know more at some point about the relationship between surrogate experiences and say like shadow experiences or imitative experiences right and how like where where that line is um i think i think your language of surrogate experiences is really interesting yeah so tell me what do you mean but what's the difference between surrogate and shadow? well so i mean they're, they're surrogacy kind of it's a kind of substitutionary dimension right like these experiences yeah. are substituting for um a, a another form of experience that you might get in a church worship hall um or are they imitating but not substituting for right like what what how do we think about the actual sort of dynamic there yeah yeah i think there is i mean 
I think they are imitating in some ways, right? We have the, whether it's the Olympics or Sunday afternoon in the United States or Saturday afternoon, right? In the UK with Premier League, there's this, there's all this, you know, sort of pomp and, and things like that before the game, the procession into the stadium, the national anthem, um, right? They, they, when you come into a football match in England and other places in the world, there's a, the game ball sits on a little podium. The referee. I mean, it's all sort of this. It's a it parallels some religious ceremony, right? We treat things with reverence, and then once the game goes, we go. But um, yeah, I guess I think of right. It's people gather in groups, uh, large groups, to watch a sporting event. So they're supporters of the same team in the same country, and so they have this bond of something in common that they care about. And uh, they, they spend their money on it, spend their time on it. Their emotions are connected to it, right? So my day's ruined if my team loses. If they win, I'm happy. So a lot of those things imitate or parallel religious experience, right? We come together as a, as a community, something that we value together. We want to see certain goals or values furthered, um, you know, in our body, believers, and out in the community in the world. So, yeah. But the problem is it's just at the end of the day with sport, it's, it's – I mean, I, I care about it, but look, it's still just sport, right? It's a, it's a human institution that, I mean, as much as it pains me to say this, if Arsenal don't win the Premier League until I die, it's really not that big of a deal, um, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but if, you know, if the church fails its mission, well, of course, well, it won't, but long enough, but yeah, it matters a lot more. But I think we tend, at least, I don't know what it's like elsewhere, but at least in the U.S., we tend to give sports both as consumers and practitioners, parents with youth sports. We just give it a pass, right? We kind of just take it as the culture delivers it to us you know, without thinking about it and maybe trying to be a bit countercultural in the midst of it. I recently wrote a piece on the subject of Brave New World for the Gospel Coalition. One of the interesting things in that book is the prominence given to sport within um the world state that's presented by Huxley. And looking back to his time, um, sport would not have had anything like the same profile in society as it does today. Um, it would have been important in many people's lives in some respects, but to the extent that it is important in our lives, um, clearly it was changing its place within society at that point. But the role that it now plays in society is immense. Um, for mediating our sense of togetherness, um, sense of identity, that we identify with particular teams, that our national identity is very much mediated by sporting, um, by our sports teams often, in a way that it wouldn't have been in the past. And I wonder whether we need to maybe pick apart some of the things that are feeding into our sports um, and shaping the way that we perceive it, the way that we practice it, and maybe lay out some of those different aspects. So, for instance, the role of mass society, that we're all um, watching this one produced spectacle um, and it binds us together in something that we're consuming, whereas sports in prior societies wouldn't have maybe had quite that same emphasis upon mass society and consumption of sports. Um, you have bread and circuses in Rome, but in previous Western societies over the last few hundred years, maybe sports 
role in holding society together was more about shared participation in the enjoyment of the sports, in actually playing them, rather than primarily in this mass spectacle that's produced by these multi-billion pound companies. I mean, thinking about the transfer fees that are paid just in the last few weeks, Pogba coming to Man United for £89 million. That's a lot of money. And you could do a lot of things with that Mm -hmm. money rather than just buy a player for a few years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's this... One of the more well-known sort of authors in philosophy of sport, her name's Heather Reed. She co-wrote a book a few years ago called Eritism, um, sort of the Greek word for virtue, an ancient sports philosophy for the modern world. And and one thing that she and uh, what's his name, Mark Holacek, they talk about the prominent model now is what they call the, the Marshall commercial model, meaning right, we sort of look at sport into, as warfare and as right, sort of a capitalistic thing. Um, and I think that's right, right? We, if you, you can see that out there. Um, so I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier. There's this split about the triumph, you know, the triumph and the struggle. And many people, I mean, I see it in local sports here with parents. When we have a game, it's like the team you're playing against is the enemy, right? We've got to, we just want to beat them. We want to, right? There's this, there's antagonism um, towards, you know, at a high school soccer match. It's just silly. Um, and all the money that, like you said, the money in the Premier League, um, whether it's for Pogba or when Bale went to Real Madrid, and all this money that gets thrown around. And I've heard people talk about it like, well, actually, you know, in the real world, it's crazy. Um, the transfer fees have shot up just this year because of all the new money flowing in. But within this weird world of the Premier League, it's just, that's what, it's like, well, that's what it costs, so that's what you do. Um, yeah, we have to think about that, right? I mean, I think that goes back to this commercial model that sports is big business. There's so much money flowing in it. Uh, it's, you're making money. You know, the te- teams get a new kit every year, and then so many other things buy a new shirt every year. Um, so, yeah, I guess <laughs> sort of rambling. I guess my thought is that's the model we have to push back against, right? An athletic contest is not a war. Um, and it's not primarily supposed to be a money-making, right? It's supposed to be, ideally, a picture of human excellence. And so we, as Christians, we want to think, what are the redemptive things in sport that we can try to support in our local context? Um, what are the things we want to try to, to avoid? And I think that warfare mentality and the money-making mentality are two huge ones. And if we're thinking in a broader social, you know, sort of social ethics or common good perspective about it, can't imagine where you could justify like the money that gets floated around for buying a player or uh, you know building a new stadium in a city or or with the Olympics in Rio or all the money that was put out just to get it ready for the games when so many social problems there could have benefited from those millions of dollars. Yeah, well, I think one of the one of the aspects of the meaning of sports, if there's a collective action problem as about like changing them as consumers of it there's there's a collective meaning uh that happens when we all gather to watch this thing so i think a lot of one one line of reasoning or one way out that someone might want to take is something like well look you know when i watch sports i don't have any of the sort of religious fervor that would go along with it um 
my complicity is mitigated by the fact that my intentions are just to spend a lazy Saturday afternoon watching um, these people who are excellent uh, do their thing, and I and I can sort of exonerate myself from all of the other side effects. And I'm not sure that you can necessarily because the um, watching um, sweeps you up into the patterns and the rituals and the um, the meaning of it, right? Um, that's, that's why it's sport and not perpetual practice because there's an audience and because um, how the audience responds to these players significantly determines um, the, the meaning of of the events. Um, we've seen audiences become central players in sporting events, if not athletic contests. And um, so the, the, the it seems like my intention as a viewer is actually in one sense secondary to the um, social dynamics that exist around these events that uh, and, and and my intention has to be sort of responsive to it, which means that in, you know, with all the sort of problems that these major sporting events have, um, the sort of resistance and abs- uh, to the problematic aspects of them may have to be heroic, right? It may have to actually be um, uh, more intentional, more conscious, more determined than it would be in sort of ancient times is the, the sort of ancient context you were describing and that Alistair was asking about, uh, which which is, is difficult, right? It's much harder to be heroically virtuous as a consumer than it is to live in a society where that don't necessarily have these problems associated with sporting. Something that may be important to bear in mind here is the fact that sport isn't just about the sport itself often the sport can be incidental to the role that the sport actually plays within our society which is that sport is very much a facilitator of um, relationships it's a sort of solvent for different groups and it's a means of um, reducing antagonisms to the level of um, agonism um, where we can have conflict, but it's not a vicious conflict. It's a conflict that we can enjoy and delight in, and we can respect each other in that conflict. I think, for instance, of <laughs> what it means to be a male within the UK, particularly if you're going to relate to um, working-class males. If you don't know about football, it's very hard to connect with people, football being association football or soccer. Um it's very difficult to connect with people without using that medium of football. That is a key element of the national conversation. It's why we have sports pages. It's why we have so much coverage on TV given to sports, often in order just to relate to other people. And if we cut ourselves off from that world of sports, what we're cutting ourselves off from is not just the sport, but the people that that enables us to relate to. Um, And that, I think, is one of the big struggles for me. How do you take responsibility for relating to people um, 
when often sport is the means by which you make yourself relatable and the means by which you can, I don't know, develop that original conversational dynamic within which you can move on to more serious matters. I thought thought you could do that by just referencing obscure philosophers and see if, <laughs> if only if there was any if there was a bite. In a That's how world. I try to meet people. <laughs> Coffee shops just drop a just drop a, a Richard Rorty quote and see if there's a spark of ironic <laughs> detachment, and then we go from there. I think I think Matt just wears his "Make America Great Again" hat. <laughs> I do. I'm- you All know, over the place. <laughs> 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 oh man, the delight I take in imagining that just that image. If you're yeah, a listener a and you want to meet that, <laughs> like just create an image with Matt wearing a Trump hat, um, I wouldn't pay you anything, but I would okay. Here's what you have to know and, 12. Uh, that's, that's a tone 12 reward. months. That's a tone that's reward. Something like yeah. six or 12 months before Donald Trump announced his candidacy for president. I actually pitched a uh, an article to a major Christian magazine on greatness and the greatness deficit in American life and how Christianity intersects with greatness. Um, and they didn't they didn't accept it. Uh, but, you know, I'm I am all about bringing greatness back into you were, American public you were, life. You were about greatness before, before Trump. Trump. Um, Is that where all the animosity really yeah, comes right. from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he took, took my line. line. That's what this is all and been about, And he ruined it. But he I actually think, line. like, what... what, 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 what Nobody can ever want to be great again. What Mike is saying about... Not, what Mike can, was saying nobody. about excellence on the sporting field, I think... I think you know, the greatness deficit in American life um, requires uh, us to, like, hold up Michael Phelps as the icon for our day. Um, because we can't go to the, like, like we've already been to the moon. Um, no one except for, like, Elon Musk is trying to go to Mars. And if he did go to Mars, I think most people would shrug their shoulders, unfortunately. Um, and so we don't have a sort of greatness project. And so, you know, Michael Phelps is the vicarious representation of American greatness, which is why, and you know, like it is warfare with the Russians. It's, it feels like we're living, this Olympics feels like we're living in, um, uh, 1978, you know, 19 or 70s, whenever the, with Putin back back out there doing his thing, hostilities there, like, the 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 contest with Russia in the in the pool um, took on a heightened significance, um, and so yeah. yeah. The other one thing one thing is I don't know if we touched on this and I just missed it. Um, the the kind of return to a almost Greek like. Um, Obsession with the body, with the perfection of the human form. You know, you talk about the philosophy of eritism, you know, virtue that used to go along with a uh, Greek approach to sports. But, um, you know, the centering of the human form 
and its perfection and its glory um, as kind of like a last area of greatness. You know, I, I've 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 worked in gyms for I worked in gyms for years and I've been going to gym. Oh, for it years. shows, Derek. And there's also it something shows. about. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna brag. <laughs> no, um, no, but I, I used to work in gyms for years, and so. I mean, these places are, these places are spiritual. We should have a show about this, but these places are places of worship and uh, in many ways. And so that other element of, there's another element of kind of the, the kind of the full fruition of what the human can be. I mean, there's something great about, yeah, hey, look what we can accomplish and look what we can do. But there's, there's also just, um, it, it might partially be the outworking of, of that that kind of recentering of the human form as as of of such massive such huge colossal importance in our kind of cultural um, imagination and because uh, when I see these people performing, you're just looking, you're thinking these people are these people are Adonises in terms of their their physical perfection that they need to achieve in order to accomplish the you know what they're doing um so i know that was was one thought that occurred to me as i was watching um some of the floor exercises the other day or or or, you know you do that you see the see the people who do the um the rings the the guys who kind of do all the spinning around on the rings and um hanging in the middle of the air and you think gosh these people were like carved by the gods like there's you know looking at them and so i don't know that that's also one of the other elements that i see in kind of the just looking at sports culture and um athletic culture uh that so yeah that's definitely true and i i mean i mean i i've I've been watching and making the way we are with at least in elite sports and it trickles down to lower levels is right. We're really pushing. I mean, people are devoting, it's professionalized, right? So they're devoting, this is all they do is train the body, um, for these, these excellent performances, but the long-term toll on the body, right. In many cases, it's pretty bad. I mean, just, you know, the injuries and the over the overuse stuff that a gymnast has, or even when professional, you know, association football, right. It's, you're always like, your, your top 11 they're at your, oh, do I need to rest this guy or can we get one more game, right? We do a scan, see, you know, an injury about to happen. We're always just right at that boundary um, and often crossing it. So, you know, there's an easy case of American football and the, the, the brain damage that occurs, but I think these other things are just as important. So it's this worship of the body, but also trying to push the body beyond what it's able to do. And then the negative effect of that on, you know, on joints, on it just takes a toll. So it's a, it's a weird, uh, dynamic there, right? Um, trying to transcend these human limits, right? So humility would tell you, look, I'm at the limit. I mean, this is as much as I can do uh, to prepare for this race or this match or I need a month off or whatever it is versus I'm going to see if I can get just a little bit more performance out of this body before it breaks down. Yeah, no, that's so true. Um, that's so true. Uh, well, guys, uh, I don't know if that's the note to end on, but I do think it's time to wrap up here. Uh, wanted to say thank you to Mike for coming on the episode today. Uh, really illuminating. And, 
you know, you too, you did all right too. Um, but, uh, but thank you again, Mike, for coming on. Uh, it's really helpful uh, to help us start thinking through some of these issues. Uh, if you're listening and you felt like this show was helpful, please feel free to share us, share it, uh, and uh, go to iTunes, rate and review the show. Uh, but otherwise, thanks for listening, and we will catch you next next time around.